Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, I missed it's... you. I missed you last week. Yes, last week. Uh, lots of domestic things going on. Nothing bad. All good. But ske- my schedule was not my own. My schedule belonged to delivery people and repair people. Oh, you had a lot on the go, and I'm just, you know, a gentleman of leisure, so. <laughs> gentleman of not many of those these days. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, not, you know, not on purpose anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, those aren't gentlemen of leisure. Those are gentlemen of stress. Yes. 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 Um, speaking of stress, the uh, media seems to be stressing out about this upcoming expected federal election. So-called but, election? Yeah, but people don't seem to be caring which is one reason why the elections are rarely ever held in the summer um and if they are it's done so because the uh party in power wants to stay in power because low turnouts which is what you get in the summer favor incumbents and i think i'm not sure when they're projecting this one's going to happen they've been projecting that it was going to happen already and you've been projecting it for a year and a half now It, it, but it's become more serious now as far as the, the, the yelling on both sides of the, of the aisle about this coming election and, you know, Justin Trudeau defending the need for an election. He, did, he effectively neutered the NDP by saying that uh, the NDP stood by and did nothing when policies where they were trying to get policies through that the NDP would have supported or would have appealed to NDP voters that the Conservatives obstructed and the NDP did, stood by and did nothing. And uh, this is after, God bless him, Jagmeet Singh went to the Governor General and said, if Trudeau wants an election, tell him no. That's true. It, was like, it was like the Governor General's second day on the job. And he, he writes her a letter saying, oh, now that you're Governor General, you surely shouldn't uh, listen to the Prime Minister of Canada when he asks uh, you, if he asks you to, to hold an election, even though it wasn't that long ago that Jadmeet Singh was on, on video saying, come on, bring on an election, we're ready for you. And uh, the Conservatives were doing that earlier on too. And now they're like, no, we don't want an election. Yeah, well, uh, I guess that they're, maybe they're polling was more optimistic back then because oh, the polling could, now is not good for either been, opposition party. Couldn't have been worse. The most recent poll of who you think would make the best prime minister had Aaron O'Toole at 8%. <laughs> 8%. I mean, like, wow. That's like the margin of error. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know what? I, I, I'm not a fan of Aaron O'Toole. But I think that he deserves more than eight percent, at, at least ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least at, at least you know round it up. Um, wow, and and do you recall what uh, the other leaders? Oh, I, had? I'll I'll have to I, I'll I'll look. I think uh, Justin Trudeau was somewhere around 40 percent, and you know Jed Jed Meat and the NDP were at its traditional sort of uh, you know sixteen percent. Well, well, that's usually the party. Uh, but, you know, when you ask who would be a prime minister, best prime minister, which is a stupid question to begin with, because we don't have a presidential system. It's yeah. you know, the party and, and uh, who is the leader of the party. So we're not voting right for prime minister. So they always do a little bit better when it comes to voting for prime minister. Um, I think, uh, Jimmy, it was somewhere around 20, 23 percent. I'll, I'll find it before we're done and tell you the numbers. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't, uh, you know. It wasn't good. Let's put it that way. And it's, the Greens, I oh, mean, they're the basically on, they're on the side of a milk box at this point. Because, uh, <laughs> Have you seen this party? And and they, you know, they haven't been in the news for like two days, which is probably a good sign. But they're still. I mean, they're they'll they're, be back. There's stories about them being bankrupt and uh, having to pay their lawyers for the fight, and it's just uh, they're you know they're just sliding into irrelevancy. Well, I mean, past irrelevancy, they're sliding into oblivion, it sounds like. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of disappear for a while and then somebody resurrects them. And, you know, it's, we have had sort of, well, they're not even third party, they're fourth or fifth party. Uh, we've had parties like that that start off as protest parties or one issue parties. And then either their platforms get absorbed by the other parties uh, you know, there was a there was a, a movement a long, long time ago called the Canada First movement. You know, uh, in the the late 1800s, and you know they're kind of Canadian nationalists, and the other two parties just took all of their policies, and there was no purpose for them anymore, and they just disappeared. And the Green Party, and we've talked before that they're kind of a strange amalgam 
of originally you know, very progressive environmental issues. Uh, but if you look at their financial economic platform, they're really quite far right in a lot of cases. I mean, if you can get any kind of a coherent idea, because it really is a, it's a very big tent, as they say. Um, but they're, they're, not, they're not leftists, particularly, although that's the way people who don't vote green kind of consider them. Uh, yeah, the people think that they're that they're leftists because typically the uh, environmental movement was associated with hippies and with people on the left. But they've got this weird amalgam, as you said, of conservative uh, financial policies with progressive environmental policies. And it's a bit of a chimera. And uh, I also think that a lot of their their policies have been absorbed into the NDP and the liberals. Uh, so I, I, my personal feeling is there's really no function for them anymore. They were, they were effective in putting environment on the agenda and getting people to care about it, but they've fulfilled their function. And maybe that's why they're, they're fighting themselves into oblivion. Now they don't really have a reason to be there and, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So for in, 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 in lieu of political movement, uh, upwards or on the uh, on the voter scale, uh, the action instead is them fighting with themselves. Well, you know, there, there's always enough blame to go around and never enough credit. Well, that, in politics, that's 100 <laughs> percent true. Uh, and, but I, I have to say that, again, Jagmeet Singh, um, either demonstrating that he and his advisors don't know how the Canadian uh, parliamentary system works, or they do know, but they know that most people don't know, and they're taking advantage of people's ignorance to make it seem like they're taking popular stands. Um, I don't know which one of those I'd rather it be. Do you have a vote? You know, both both is kind of scary. I mean, one is cynical politics, and and the other is kind of shocking ignorance from someone who is a lawyer and has been a parliamentarian for a while now. And you know, this was the problem with the letter to the, to uh, the governor general, which is you know there you know you can't you can't do this. And the governor general you know, the governor general has very very limited power. I mean, yes, on paper, theoretically, the governor general has the say of you know dissolving parliament and. Uh, you know, signing, you know, signing off on Supreme Court justices and all those sorts of things that are part of the crown prerogative. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in actual fact, you know, ever since the, the King Bing affair, I saw someone referring to it as the King Bing Singh affair, which I thought was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> politically brilliant, but is going to be lost on most people. You know, the King Bing affair, which was almost 100 years ago, was the, uh, was the uh, uh, Mackenzie King wanting to call an election and, uh, and the, the governor general uh, Bing saying no I'm not going to I'm going to give someone else another shot at it and so in the ensuing election uh, you know, King won a majority finally after having a minority and uh, it it basically silenced the governor general when it came to these sorts of things and they had we have these conservatives like Harper who brought in the um, in 2006 the fixed election act so we have a fixed election date, which is 2013, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, uh, but the first thing that Harper did, of course, was call an early election in 2008. Um, he, he, he decided he wanted a majority. With, you know, and uh, so he called an early election in 2008 and broke his own fixed election act. And the, uh, a group called Democracy Watch, uh, Duff Conacher, took them to court saying, you're breaking your own fixed election law. And it's the only time that the fixed election law um, legislation has been tested in court. And the judge said, you know what? You don't need a full formal vote of non-confidence for the prime minister to go to the governor general and say, I don't have the confidence of the house. I need an election. It's more of a touchy feely thing. It's like, I don't feel like I have the confidence of the house to put forward my agenda. Um, you know, I've worked with them and it's worked bits and pieces of it. But, you know, in this case, uh, you know, um, Trudeau could say both parties have been obstructionist. They've given us a tough time in committees. They, uh, you know, over and above just sort of we have to work with them to come up with some sort of a compromise on most legislation like you do in a minority situation. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the 2008 court decision said if the prime minister feels that they do not have the confidence 
to carry forth an agenda, then it's the prime minister's call that they, that he or she does not have the confidence of the house and that triggers an election. Now there's a little corollary to that, which is, you know, if you've just had an election, got a minority and you don't like the results of that election, the governor general theoretically will say, you know, we've just had an election. We're not gonna have another election three months later. Uh, but the, this this myth per persists that the governor general has this 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 power of the king or the queen to thwart the duly elected prime minister and party in power. Yeah, uh, and you know we we've had a lot of parliamentary history that that says you know the 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 crown steps back in questions of democracy like this, and it isn't up to the governor general to say yes or no. It's the same thing we went through when Harper was proroguing parliament. There's all kinds of calls, you know, on social media, usually among people who aren't constitutional lawyers saying, yeah, the governor general should deny Stephen Harper the prorogation, because that is, is also, you know, something that has to be signed off by the governor general. And mm -hmm. even then, you know, Lord knows I was no fan of, of Stephen Harper, but I was going like, no, the governor general can't deny the prime minister the, the, the right to call for prorogation of, of parliament because that is the government's uh, you know, uh, right to do that when they want to. You know, they will pay for it at the ballot box or in public opinion or something else, but the governor general doesn't, isn't sitting there at the big switch that says yes and no when the prime minister walks up the, 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 the driveway at Rideau Hall to ask for something to happen in parliament. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And even today, uh, today or yesterday, um, Andrew Coyne wrote a, an article saying that Singh was right in writing to the to the Queen because you know constitutional people say that there there are all these theoretical powers in the uh, in the Governor General and the problem is yeah they're all theoretical and no Governor General would ever do that because it would cause a constitutional crisis in Canada about who really is in charge is it the, is it the Governor General uh, or is it you know, is it the uh, is it parliament represented by uh, by the governing party and the prime minister? Yeah, it'd be. It is fair to say that there are theoretical routes that the governor general can take, but then there's the actual reality where you know rubber hits the road and nobody is going to stir up that pot now. Those uh, theor those theoretical powers may as well not be there because triggering them would trigger something much bigger that uh, certainly I don't think uh, the Queen is interested in having, and I don't think we're interested in having here in this country. I wonder, though, the opposition parties are clearly positioning themselves that this is an election that nobody wants. You know, as you pointed out, after both opposition leaders at some point in time have said, we're ready for an election, we want an election, they're now saying they don't want an election. So they're going to position themselves as uh, opposing the government on having an election that nobody wants, and they're going to try to stir up anti-government sentiment over the fact that the government called an election. I don't think that that's a winning strategy. What about you? No, I don't think it is either. I, I, I think there is always, you know, Canadians, as much as we love our democracy, we don't like elections because, you know, they're, you, know, you have people coming to your door, asking you for money, asking if they can put up a sign. Commercials uh, uh, annoy us. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, Canadians don't like negative uh, commercials either. And, uh, you know, they just sort of, it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. You know, we love our democracy, but we just don't necessarily want to participate in, in <laughs> too, too often. Um, and, uh, you know, aside from the political wonks who are there, you know, every, every minute of every day, you know, by and large Canadians, uh, you know, we like our government to be quiet and out of the way and just do your thing and not bug us too much. And there is, and we talked about this on, on our last podcast, I mean, there have been some examples where people have called early elections because they were riding high in the polls and they thought, hey, now's a good time to, uh, to get myself reelected for four years. <laughs> and they call a snap election and the Canadian voting uh, public goes, you know, that's a little too cynical, even for us. Well, and that they, was uh, Frank Miller in Ontario and David Peterson in Ontario. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, and it, it's happened. Uh, it, it's happened elsewhere. And, P and Canadians just go, uh, you know, we're going to punish you. Um, so, you know, Trudeau could end up watching his uh, his his paper uh, poll majority uh, disappear because people uh, you know feel that it's a cynical ploy to, to grab power. Now, there's ways, you know. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not plugged into Ottawa. I'm not a strategist, but I would think, you know, 
if I was Trudeau, I would bring back the, uh, you know, bring back uh, the House of Commons, and I would put forward a very progressive, aggressive agenda with a bunch of legislation, and just say, no, this is this is it. Uh, vote for it or don't. And either you get all that you want because they're afraid to call the election by by defeating your legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a win. I mean, you actually run, you know, run your agenda, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. Um, or they go, no, we're not going to vote for that. Instead of doing the tag team that the NDP and the conservatives do, which is half the time the NDP will support a bill and the conservatives will vote against it and they can say, oh, we voted against this or vice versa. The conservatives will support the liberals on occasion or just enough of them using the using the whip system to make sure that they don't defeat the government um, so they can, you know, so the, the NDP can uh, can vote against it and uh, the NDP can say, no, this didn't go far enough if, you know, but if you don't do the compromise, you engineer basically the, um, the, the uh, a non-confidence vote and then you go to the polls and say, yeah, look, we're not calling their election. They defeated our legislation, which, by the way, was great legislation, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And this is a legitimately called election. It's not because of us. It's because of those guys. And then the anger gets uh, deflected to the opposition parties. I think that would be, you know, again, if I was uh, if I was sitting in the, the corner of the Langevin building in Ottawa, I'd think that's the that's the way that you get your election. But you don't get it immediately and uh, they say you don't do the walk to the uh, governor general's residence asking for an election too early uh, and of your own volition but we'll yeah. see I, you know we will see it, it I, you know we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that if the government puts forward an aggressive progressive agenda it'd be hard for the ndp to vote against it in which case the government will survive uh it, it they would have to do some deft stick handling to create a uh, budget or a plan that both the NDP and the Conservatives dislike. Because what one, usually what the NDP dislikes, the Conservatives will be okay with. And what the NDP is okay with or likes, the Conservatives hate. So it's, it, this is a very interesting bit of negotiation that they're going to have to do, do to try to create a reason for for the house to be dissolved though as you mentioned they don't necessarily need to do that they can just say that as you said we're having trouble on committees they're being obstructionist we can't get our job done we were elected to do something for canadians they're not allowing us to do it we need to go back to the people and let them decide we'll see if the, i i know that uh, when we talked about this a few weeks ago you were kind of you weren't necessarily believing that there was going to be an election and you converted me to your side in the sense of it, it's going to be a difficult thing to do, but everyone seems to believe it's going to happen. So well, I keep I keep hearing that, you know, they, you know, the, 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 the cognoscenti in Ottawa say, well, you know, the liberals have uh, have chartered the buses and the planes, which is, you know, one of those uh, one of those things that, you know, reading the tea leaves, they say, well, there's going to be an election. And, the, and in response, I mean, it, it's sort of like uh, that movie War Games where everyone uh, you, know, you know gets ready for war, but nobody wants it. They're yeah. getting all their missiles ready. So the liberals have chartered the buses and the planes. And in response, the the conservatives and the NDP have uh, chartered buses planes you know you can cancel those sorts of things but you know everyone is everyone's ready for this but you know everyone keeps saying well we don't really want it i mean and you know in quebec so sing is here's a a, a legge uh, i think it's a legge poll just came out um you know in quebec uh sing is running at eight percent huh. and o o'toole is running at eight percent in the best prime minister poll, uh, Trudeau is running at 30%. In Atlantic Canada, O'Toole again is at 8%. Um, Trudeau is at 34%. Sings at 24%. You know, in BC, Trudeau's at 28. Sings at 23. O'Toole's at 11. You know, and the shocking one is in Alberta. Alberta, uh, best prime minister, Singh is at 25%. Trudeau's at 18. And O'Toole's at 15%. That's so, interesting. Yeah, I mean, in 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 Bible Belt hardcore truck nuts Alberta, um, O'Toole is is third, um, and and he's third behind you know none of the above, and I don't know as well. I mean, there's all of those people in there. In Ontario, you know, Trudeau's at twenty nine, Singh's at twenty one, O'Toole's at twelve. Uh, you know, Singh is feeling okay, a little bit better about some of this, but um, again, you know. The, you know, the NDP vote tends to spread out a little bit. 
um, and you know the conservative vote tends to be very very concentrated in a couple of ridings uh, where they win. You know when they win, they win by a landslide and yeah, a, a huge plurality. And you know you only have to win by vo one vote exactly. Um, so you know in terms of number of votes, doesn't really matter. You just need that one extra one more than anyone else to in our uh, first past the post system. Um, so it, it's all how the votes are going to uh, spread out, but. You know, if I was conservative looking at those numbers, I'd be, I'd, well, I'd be very, very scared. And, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that uh, that the conservative uh, elite is saying, you know, call the election so we can get rid of uh, O'Toole faster and find somebody else. I'm not sure who that would be, but, uh, you know, they're, they they want to pull the Band-Aid off in a hurry and uh, and get rid of this uh, this pain that they have uh, that, uh, you know, O'Toole just hasn't been able to get any traction. Well, uh, not just not get any traction. He's been backsliding. Yeah, he's not getting any traction going uphill. He's sliding back down the hill while the wheels are going full tilt. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he went into it with people. You know, he was like Joe Who with uh, with Joe Clark. This was uh, Aaron Who, and he. The more people got to know him, the less they seemed to like him. So his negatives have outweighed his positives or even people's awareness of who he is. He doesn't have the dynamism to, uh, to attract an audience. It, it's, what's interesting is he doesn't seem youthful and energetic enough, and he's actually younger than Trudeau. And when he's you know third choice in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba behind Singh and Trudeau, um, there's something clearly wrong with the way he has positioned himself and the Conservative Party. And I've heard from, you know, I, oddly enough, I have friends who are actually, uh, you know, fairly right conservatives. And for them, he's not conservative enough um, that, you know, he's betrayed the conservative vision of Harper and, uh, you know, and the craziness that's going on south of the border. Mm -hmm. And so they don't like him because he isn't conservative enough, but his you know that that sort of nod to the progressive conservative uh, minority that still exists within the conservative party after years of of, of Harper and company. Uh, you know they are not convinced that he is progressive at all, and the same for the general pop, pop, um, uh, population. You know the voting public looks at you know how he's been soft on um, on women's issues. Soft is, is is a polite way to put it. You know just the other day, uh, New Brunswick. Uh, there's some there's controversy in New Brunswick about the funding of a standalone abortion clinic in an area where there isn't any women's reproductive uh, health services. And uh, Trudeau has said, you know, well, we're going to withhold some money from New Brunswick until you actually start providing um, you know, service. It's not enough that you have it in a couple of hospitals. You need to actually, you know, get out into some of the communities where people, you know, can can actually access these services. Right. And O'Toole's answer was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell uh, New Brunswick uh, how to fund their healthcare. And that was a clear dog whistle to the uh, to the anti-abortion wing of his party, um, saying like, you know, I'm on the abortion issue. I'm going to let other people do it, as opposed to on the progressive you know, liberal NDP side of things, it's like, no, no, access to abortion is an important women's issue. And, uh, you know, it, it's not enough that it is available some, in some corner of your province, it has to be accessible to people. And so that's the sort of thing that O'Toole keeps playing cute and footsie with on some of these uh, you know, hot button progressive issues that uh, the social progressives, the few that exist in the conservative party, you know, just aren't convinced. And the greater public looks at it and goes, no, same old story. This is still the, uh, the social uh, Bible Belt conservatives that have been running the, the party since uh, Harper took over. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, I mean, I don't think that anybody's, it's, in order for the opposition strategy to work, which is to try to foment discontent against the liberals for having an election, people would have to feel some sort of passion about the election happening. And I don't think there's going to be much passion in this election. I think it's going to be poorly, uh, poorly voted, like the numbers will not be very high. And people will mostly shrug when this election comes, you know, if it does come as people are projecting, I think the attitude of most Canadians will be a shrug. Uh, they're not going to get their blood boiling over an election that people don't really care if it happens or doesn't. 
No, and and the opposition has been struggling to find that issue that defines the election. I mean, a lot of elections end up turning on a single issue, and they've had all these trial balloons. I mean, COVID was a big one. It was all about the uh, you know vaccine procurement was is a shambles and all the rest. And just uh, just this week, uh, Canada announced that it actually surpassed Israel for vaccinations. I mean, Israel. You know, all of the people who are beating up on on the government of Canada about uh, vaccine pr uh, procurement and rollout and how it's been botched. We're saying, look at Israel; they're at thirty percent or whatever. Well, we've now passed Israel. I mean, and we've talked before about it being a completely different kind of um, social situation, which allowed Israel to get a really good uh, uh, good start on it. Yeah. But uh, you know, but. So the, the the vaccination, the COVID thing is going going away. You know, they, they tried to get them on uh, uh, the uh, that we're paying eight dollars a dose for vaccines at some point, and now you know some they're saying well some of the countries are now paying twenty four. $30 a dose for vaccines. So that issue kind of disappeared. Then we had all the indigenous issues come up. Uh, you know, we had the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the mass graves uh, at the residential schools and, you know, people love to grab the liberals on hypocrisy. It's, you know, you talk a good game about, uh, you know, Aboriginal affairs and first nations, but, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you know, you, you've got a terrible record on, you know, you know look at, look at all this that's going on. You know, we're, we're finding day after day, you know, more and more graves or the boil water advisories. And, you know, they, they're all important ongoing issues, but they never really became a catalyst for a movement away from the, the liberal government in terms of, of incompetence. I mean, there's been some ethical things too. You know, again, there was another ethical thing that uh, came up earlier. Um, uh, again, the Globe and Mail brought it up and it was a, uh, uh, that uh, a friend of Trudeau's uh, named Pitfield was hired to, to do some data analytics uh, by the Liberal Research Bureau. And somebody made a complaint to the Ethics Commissioner and the Ethics Commissioner came back it was either yesterday or it was reported today that no, there was absolutely no connection between Trudeau himself and the awarding of the contract. So there's no ethics violation. So they just keep looking for this hook for the election and they don't really seem to be able to find one that goes, ah, oh, look how terrible this government is. It's like, okay, yeah, there's things they could have done better. Uh, there's things people aren't happy about, but there hasn't been that one defining moment yet that either party can use to beat the liberals on the head with and and, uh, and score a major gain in the election. I think the opposition has to look at this fact. Justin Trudeau won re-election with a blackface scandal hanging over him. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no blackface scandal coming up this time around. I mean, certainly we didn't think so before the last election, but I don't see any of the, the, the skeletons in Justin Trudeau's closet, I think have already been exposed. Yeah, so, and, yeah, and there have been a few. I mean, there, well, you know, blackface was 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 a big one. Uh, you know, before that, there was the uh, the story about the sexual harassment, which has uh, you know, in, when he was in Kokanee, uh, and you know that was, that whole thing was cloudy enough that no one could really figure out what was going on. And at the end of the day, it wasn't. Uh, uh, it, it it was a. Um, um, an event that nobody really felt came to came to the uh, uh, there was no clarity there. Yeah, there's no clarity at all. So it was really hard to I mean, and, you know, and any any unwanted sexual advances and unwanted sexual advance and no one should be subject to that. But at the end of the day, it was a long time ago. And, you know, people seem to incorporate that. Um, you know, along with a blackface, uh, there's still people I see on my Twitter feed all the time who are mad about uh, not getting rid of the first past the post, which was a pro an election promise uh, when well, when Trudeau unexpectedly got his first term um, and and then abandoned for various reasons. Uh, so, but all these things have now been sort of been digested, and the people who are mad about those issues are going to continue to be mad about those issues and aren't going to vote that way anyway. But I don't think it's winning over any new converts to uh, the I hate Trudeau school. No, I don't think so. So we'll wait and see. Uh, what else? What other choice do we have? Well, exactly. You know, maybe uh, maybe there'll be an election and people going door to door with masks. But uh, I'm I'm not holding my breath for it. Yeah, and and that's kind of funny thing about masks and holding your breath. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned something. Uh, you mentioned the uh, indigenous stories that have been coming out this this summer, and you mentioned mass graves. And somebody pointed out that 
what in fact we're talking about are cemeteries. Well, well, by that definition, any cemetery is a mass it's grave. A mass grave, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, it, they're unmarked graves, um, and you know, and they, they seem to have been, you know, f- from what we hear from the indigenous groups that are going out using ground searching radar. I mean, there are are fairly orderly burials. I mean, when we think of mass graves, you know, you think of you know the horrors of World War II, where they you know dig a big, big pit and they throw everybody in. Yeah, um, you know, and it I doesn't. Th- I think it doesn't that's what lessen the horror of what happened, but no. It's... But I think that there. I, I get this I, when somebody when I read that thing about them being cemeteries, I thought, you know what? That's a hundred percent true. And using the term mass graves, I think, is a media way of uh, being more inflammatory than necessary. The, the fact that there are unmarked graves and forgotten cemeteries is bad enough. Um, to embroider it by calling them mass graves and calling into mind things that happened during the uh, the the war with between you know former Yugoslavia, for example, to take a, yeah. a you know or in Rwanda or in the Sudan. Uh, when we think mass graves in North America, we think of what you said, a giant pit and bodies just thrown in willy nilly with no respect, and. I, so every time I read mass graves now, I just in my head say, you mean cemeteries. Can we talk about the issue as it actually is? Because it's bad enough. You don't need to add extra emotion-packed words and terms to it in order to get people to pay attention. Lost cemeteries and unmarked graves is, is enough for people to sit up and pay attention. So I, I just feel like that's a bit of media manipulation. That, and I always like to point out when I see media manipulation, because it seems uh, sometimes it seems like the media are propagandizing uh, and they're doing it not because they necessarily support a pol- political position, but because it makes for a more emotion packed story. Yeah. And it, it, and I, I think it does a, a disservice for the people who are trying to actually, you know, um, understand what happened to, you know, to find the bodies, to understand who's in these these uh, these these unmarked graves um yeah and again you know they're not it, it, these things were, were were outlined in the um, the truth and reconciliation report i mean the the idea that uh, that residential schools had cemeteries is not a new concept i mean you know, we've known it for for years and you know whenever we, uh, you know, we've seen lots of interviews with uh, survivors of the residential school system and they all knew that there's a cemetery there um you know they talk about well you know they, you know, they got me up to, to dig the grave or to take the body out and they, you know, they buried them, you know, and that's where people went. Um, so, you know, even the students knew that they were there. Um, they, it, 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 it wasn't, it, it shouldn't be a surprise to people. And I think the sensationalizing of it does a disservice to how serious it is and to the real facts. And, and the fact that, you know, some of them are, are actually at the same site as graves for, adults and non-indigenous people so you know some of the it, it makes good a good uh, it sells newspapers when you have a big number um but you start looking at it going well that big number uh is a number of students and children who died generally of they say disease and malnutrition, and tuberculosis and, and and general neglect which is tragic enough um on its own but also, the town would use that cemetery. There would be teachers who were buried there from time to time, or uh, or other people who worked there. It it isn't just the children, so the numbers get inflated because it makes a better story for the newspapers to sell more newspapers. And again, that does a disservice because it's all about finding the truth. I mean, that's the first word in the truth and reconciliation um, report, as figuring out exactly what happened, who's there, and then uh, you know honoring honoring the dead and, and seeking redress for it um but uh, again all of this sort of sensationalizing it and politicians using it for to score cheap points but the problem is of course you know these uh, these cemeteries have been there for so long and under so many different governments it's really difficult you know just because they're being found today doesn't make it uh you know the problem with the government of today uh, they weren't behind 
uh, burying those people. It was uh, it was other organizations. It was other governments. It it was uh, you know systemic neglect going back uh, you know more than a hundred years, um, and you know more than neglect. It was uh, you know it was a policy of of genocide. But uh, so it really again as an election issue, it really hasn't gained a lot of traction because there's more than enough blame to go around and we're still trying to figure out, you know, really what, uh, you know, who was buried there and uh, where do we go from here? Yeah. And I, I think also that uh, people hear the term genocide and they think, well, these kids were killed deliberately. And what the, what the uh, residential schools were trying to do was cultural genocide. They didn't want to kill the kids. They wanted to uh, make them into white kids, so to speak. They wanted to strip away their culture their their heritage from them and make them uh, good uh, good white people uh, who just look different and cultural genocide is is bad enough uh, again and when they mention people mention genocide it makes people think that the that the purpose of residential schools was to kill these kids which it wasn't uh, the purpose of the residential schools is not one which we look at today and say yeah that makes good sense uh we've progressed to a point where we have greater respect for other people's heritages and their beliefs so the idea that uh, you're doing someone a favor by robbing them of their traditions and their heritage no that doesn't wash anymore uh, but it's uh it, i mean it's 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 a difficult issue to to grasp and i think that over dramatizing it if I could say that's that that's what's being done by talking about mass graves, I'm afraid that it makes this something which re reaches an emotional fever pitch, which usually with any news story, the emotional fever pitch is followed by an abrupt drop in interest. Yes. And I think we're seeing that now. I mean, we haven't, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, there are a lot of these grave sites across uh, Canada and I, I'm sure that there are uh, there are bands that are you know money is now being provided to them to be able to search uh, using you know uh, radar and other passive means uh, to to discover yeah. you know the extent of cemeteries you know in and around residential schools. So you know we we're going to have years of of discoveries, uh, but you know the discovery of of a mass grave is the first step. Uh, it's uh, you find out, you know, the cemetery, you know, the limits, how many people are buried there. And then the next step is to figure out who they are, because some of these some of these uh, these um, residential school cemeteries had markers at some point. I mean, they had um, they had crosses they had, but, you know, they were generally wood and they deteriorated because no one, you know, because they were neglected. They were neglected in death the way they were neglected in life. And there was no one to maintain it. And, and make it permanent. I mean, we think of cemeteries now, you walk through Mount Pleasant Cemetery, any of the big ones uh, around the world, and you know, we have these big stone markers. Uh, you know, there, was no, there was no inclination to do that kind of you know, work. It was expensive. And one thing they were doing is not spending a lot of money on residential school children. And the families didn't have the money to do this sort of thing if they knew about it, uh, about the death of, of, uh, of their children to, to memorialize them. So temporary markers disappeared over time. Um, you know, which is a, a tragedy, but we, we also do have pioneer cemeteries all over Canada. We talked about this uh, before where we don't even know where they are and we don't know who's buried in them because record keeping was terrible. Sometimes it was private. Sometimes, you know, there's headstones. If you go through, you can't even read the headstones. Um, so you don't know, you know, if you're walking around, you don't, you don't know someone is there. Um, graves get moved for all kinds of reasons. You know, these days it's for building condos. Uh, they find prime land and they they move bodies um, in cemeteries. Generally, if they can find Mexican, they get permission or compensation or something. And I'm sure you know in uh, in native uh, situations there was not those niceties being observed. If they needed the land, they just dug it up. I know my uh, my grandparents who lived in Hamilton on the mountain uh, decided uh, they had a, a dirt floor in their basement. Um, it was. Uh, you know, uh, I, I used to play in that basement all the time as a kid when they uh, finally decided to pour concrete in the basement. Uh, you know, they, they dug out the, the, the basement uh, to get a little bit of height. They found two headstones. Um, uh, never found the bodies. 
And so there's no idea if those headstones belong to a body that has since disappeared entirely. Um, or if, uh, you know, the headstones were, you know, they, they were bought and, uh, you know, they got a really good deal on headstones and they put it in the basement. Uh, although there were, there were names attached to them, I remember. I don't know whatever happened to them, but we, you know, with a couple million years of human habitation, we're always walking on each other's bones. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you know where they are, we just have developed this Victorian sense of, of memorializing people uh, that really didn't exist in a lot of cultures or, or you go back far enough. I mean, the plague pits of Europe, you know, in England, you can't stick a shovel in the ground without finding the bones of someone from the Civil War or from the Vikings or from Romans or something, They're, or, or you know, robbers who were uh, hung at a, uh, at a crossroads. You know, literally, uh, you know, they are finding skeletons all the time in England because people died and often they were just buried where they were. Um, we have including kings. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, they, they, they found uh, 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 Richard III under a parking lot. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, nobody, you know, they, they, he had been missing for like 800 years. So <sighs> missing and presumed dead. Yes, presumed dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, again, it's a topic that uh, is inexhaustible. And but I just worry that uh, I've just seen it too often when the public's horror is uh, is aroused. It's then followed by apathy and oh, didn't we care about that last week? We got something. Isn't there something new to care about? It's it's like when when you lose your temper, you'll boil over and afterwards that leaks out of you and you start reassessing uh, what you were angry about. Uh, it happens with, with being horrified too. You get horrified by what, you know, justifiably horrified by these unmarked cemeteries. And then you think a lot of people think that being horrified is all they really need to do to validate themselves as good people. And, oh, it's okay. I was horrified about that. So I'm a good person. Let's move on. And that's why I ob object to any attempt to embroider an already tragic story that that has tragedy sown you know within it from the beginning so that i i hope i'm wrong let's put it that way i hope i'm wrong yeah and as you said you know the the world of the internet and the headlines and uh, you know you know glib uh, shocking uh, um leading uh, you know tweets and statements that uh, you know don't really reflect you know, the true story, you know, drive people's outrage. So you find people who are incredibly upset about issues. And then you say, well, did you know this about the issue? I mean, there's a little context and balance to it. Um, do you know all the facts? No, I just read the headlines and I'm mad as hell. It's like, well. Well, you and can't. if you attempt to provide context in certain stories, then they, they ascribe you to be uh, aligned with a position that you're not aligned with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's hard to describe, you know, when you try to bring a little balance and, and uh, perspective to something, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring the horror, but you're saying, well, look, this is what it is. And you got to realize that headlines are there to enrage you because it makes you want to read. Um, and, you know, that, you know, it, it's the hook that, uh, that every editor works for to get someone to click on the link. So, you know, the, uh, the, the person who's selling you a Peloton bike can sell you a Peloton bike because the ad's halfway down the story. Um, and, you know, people just trade in these sort of horror stories back and forth, some of which are truly horrible, but it's, it, it's not the sort of thing that causes in-depth reason discussions and that's really how you move forward it's uh, it, it's actually understanding things not just this kind of slacktivist outrage that uh, you know i'm gonna like this tweet it's like in there i've done my duty it's like well okay good for you yeah i uh, want to briefly move on to the discussion of schools in ontario being opened in the fall Oh, let me say how happy I am that my son is not in public school anymore. <laughs> He's not in grade school anymore. It's uh, I don't I feel bad for the people who are, but uh, I'm I'm just so relieved that we're all double vaccinated and we we he's moved on to the next you know university, which is a whole other thing. But but the public schools, holy cow, in Ontario. Yeah, uh, we're concerned about a fourth wave, potentially a fourth wave coming. 
not as concerned as we were necessarily about the third wave because the third wave we weren't vaccinated. Uh, we do have means to to withstand the the worst of it. At least that's what the vaccines are supposed to do, not stop us from getting COVID, stop us from dying or developing long haul uh, characteristics. But, you know, the government in Ontario denied, denied, denied that schools were in any way a vector for the spread of COVID. And then they kind of tacitly or one of the Ontario authorities tacitly admitted, yeah, it was a problem. Because you could see every time schools went back for in in person learning, there was guess what a, COVID a cases went up. Yeah, yeah. there was a, another, another spike. Not and, among the kids, but among their grandparents and their parents and their older siblings and all that. Yeah, and even some kids are getting it now. Oh yeah, absolutely. So especially the Delta variant, which seems to uh, to, to love children. So I I have to question what is the motivation behind sending students back to school when we've still got the Delta variant out there and not everybody has been uh, double vaxxed. What, who, what constituency is Ford serving in doing this? Is it his uh, corporate donors who want the parents back at work and don't wanna have to let them be at home anymore to look after their kids? Uh, is it just some fundamental belief that school, students should be in schools, in physical schools. I'm trying to understand why, I mean, Ford's approval ratings are low enough as it is. If there's another spike and it, it's seen to, to have originated in schools, it's gonna bury him further. I don't understand the political thinking that goes into making a decision like this, do you? Well, all I can think is, you know, for conservatives, it's always the economy, the economy, the economy. And it doesn't matter if everyone's dead. Uh, as long as the economy is doing well, then then, <laughs> then people don't buy your things. And that's a success. Right? Well, because and getting kids back into school, especially kids who can't look after themselves. So you're looking at the public school, grade school. Um, that is the prerequisite for getting people back to work. You know, you can't leave, you can't go to your job if uh, you've got to be at home uh, trying to, you know, teach you, teach your children, wipe their nose, make them a peanut butter sandwich, make sure they don't set the place on fire. Um, and unless you have school daycare um, for kids, you are not going to be able to get your workers back in the factories um, and get the economy going again. So I really see it not for the kids. I mean, and yes, kids need to be socialized. Kids miss school terribly. My, you know, my son misses school terribly. Um, you know, and there is an important socializing that goes on and not to mention the learning and all the rest of the stuff uh, that just, you know, is kind of been patched together as best as the teachers could with, uh, with this um, online distance learning. But I really think it is about getting kids out of the house during the day so people can go back to work because the, the, the new, you know, they've had so long to think, you know, had the entire summer to work this out. Uh, you know, well, they've had longer than that because school's been out, for, you know, since since well, since March. I guess they went out for March break and never came back. The um, uh, they've had a long time to think about this, and the plan that the Ontario government has rolled out is basically the same plan as they started with, but they've loosened it up. Even though we're looking at the Delta variant right now, which the scientists say is more transmissible, it's more infectious than smallpox. I mean, that's the that's that's the the evolutionary beauty of COVID uh, uh, Delta variant is it is mutated in something that is much more infectious. And now they say, okay, well, we're going to have the same rules we had last time, um, but now we're going to have high contact sport can now be permitted indoors, and you don't have to wear it. Uh, uh, you know, you don't have to wear masks if you're in singing or if you're doing all kinds of other things. And it's just, uh, you've got to wonder that they just, are they catering to, I can't see that they're catering to the anti-vaxxers, although it is part of their constituency, you know, to, you know, Ford's own daughters are anti-vaxxers. And one of them did a, did a, a TikTok video about, uh, you know, her skepticism that, you know, COVID is real and vaccinations work. So you got to wonder, you know, at whose need did she learn that? Um, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the new Delta variant uh, is much worse. And we're going in with the same crappy plan that we left this mess with last year. 
it just doesn't make sense. And, uh, you know, just looking at the, uh, the Delta variant and looking at the possibility of a fourth wave, I think that it's going to be, have to be handled very differently this time around than previous waves. Because as we've talked about on the show before, I think people are fed up with being locked down. Uh, I think, you know, and, and I, I think we need to learn to live with COVID not try to live apart from COVID because COVID's not going to go away. It's not completely going to vanish from the face of the earth. It's going to be a reality of our lives like other infectious illnesses. It's going to be there and people are going to catch it and people are going to die from it. Um, that doesn't mean we, we give up being vigilant, but we have to be realistic about resuming uh, other aspects of life, which are themselves also important. And I think that, uh, you know, my personal feeling is that keep the restrictions on businesses that it's 25% capacity or whatever, keep the mask mandate in place, but don't close the businesses altogether. Don't do it anymore. Uh, I, I'm not sure about, you know, indoor dining. Um, I'd have to see the stats on that, though I do know that uh, the time I ate at a restaurant the first time in well, ages, uh, this was about a month ago, uh, the restaurant was extremely vigilant about following the guidelines to the letter. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to have to make the lockdowns and stay-at-home orders a thing of the past because we need to learn to live with COVID because it's not going away and we can't keep shutting ourselves down just because it's here because it's, it's, it's going to be here. Well, and, you know, and if you are going to live with COVID, I mean, I saw a very funny, a very funny thing on Twitter where someone said, you know, no one suggested we actually live with polio. Um, we actually did our best to get rid of it. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, we are trying to do our best to get rid of COVID. We're trying to minimize its effects. And with the schools, especially in Ontario, you don't see them doing any of the things that everyone knows you have to do. So, you know, there aren't smaller classes, which allows better spacing. They're still packing kids in, you know, 35 to a classroom. Mm -hmm. And the teacher is saying, like, I can't put six feet between the kids. I can't, you know, I can't isolate them. And we know that you have to do that, you know, for social distancing. We've known that from the very beginning. Um, yeah. So there's no plan to do that in the schools because that would mean bigger facilities, hiring more teachers because a teacher can only teach a certain number of people in physical space. So you got to hire more teachers. Well, what do conservatives hate? They hate the teachers. Uh, they're not going to hire any more teachers because, you know, the teachers union gives them a tough time all the time. And, you know, and, you know, some of them just generally don't like education very much either. So teachers are a favorite whipping boy of, of the conservatives. You know, they're not going to mandate uh, vaccinations for, uh, for all educators. Um, I think that is like the first thing you've got to do. You're seeing the United States finally in private industry uh, and uh, Biden announced it the other day, too, about uh, federal works as well. They're mandating vaccinations. Um, and, you know, Microsoft just said, if you're going to work with Microsoft, you got to be vaccinated. Uh, no exceptions, no, no, no excuses. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in the States, which is, you know, all my personal freedoms kind of stuff. Well, that's kind of extraordinary because the businesses re have realized, quite aside from the politics, because they don't care about the politics, we can't do business. We cannot make money if people are getting sick and we're shutting down our lines. Uh, so you've got to get vaccinated if you want to work here and we don't care about your rights. Um, vaccines are, you know, hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated at this point. They're safe, they're effective. It's the way out of this thing and you've got to get vaccinated. But in Ontario, uh, you know, the, the provincial government has said no, no to uh, teachers getting vaccinated. Now, there are teachers who don't want to get vaccinated too and they've got to, you know, it's a double-edged sword they're you know because it's a union and the collective bargaining you know they're saying well you know we could never get our members to agree to it the same way they can't get the nurses to agree to it and and some of the other professions who you think would be a slam dunk yeah. for, uh, for full vaccination you'd hope but yeah but again uh, if the provincial government was serious about getting back to school they'd say all teachers you can't teach in, unless you're uh, you can't teach in the classroom unless you're vaccinated um and if you're not vaccinated we'll try to find your work but you know if you can't then tough because this isn't a collective bargaining issue. This is a public health issue. Um, Agreed. And ventilation systems in schools. I mean, 
school. I mean, they just they just finally got the asbestos out of most of the schools. Yes. Um, and now they're talking about, well, they need ventilation and air exchange. There's lots of schools where the windows don't even open. And a lot of them have, uh, you know, they're old, especially in the inner cities where the schools are very old, not so much in the suburbs where they just built something and they've actually had good HVAC systems, but they've got really bad sick building syndromes in a lot of schools. Yes. And it costs a ton of money to fix these things. And again, the provincial government doesn't want to spend money. There, there was a report uh, just uh, uh, last week where the Ford government uh, accounts, according to the provincial auditors, said there was $9 billion of COVID relief that they didn't spend, that they just decided they were going to bank and use it to, to uh, presumably uh, drop down the deficit to make them look better going into the uh, next year's election. But uh, they don't want to spend money because you know, remediation of buildings is incredibly expensive. And you know the, the uh, you know, regular testing in schools. I mean, they said you know they don't want to do testing anymore. Uh, there's all kinds of things that they just have not done on their list. If you were serious about reopening schools safely, so if you are going to live with COVID, you got to do all this other stuff too, and not just sort of well, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do, and people are going to get sick, and you know, what are you going to do? If only if only there was something we could do about it. Whereas a year ago. A year and a half ago, we were going, oh my God, if only there was a vaccine that we could use and we could get out of all of this, we could vaccinate ourselves out of this situation. And now we've got the vaccine. It's like, nah, well, we're not going to, we're not going to tell anyone they need to be vaccinated. We'll just, uh, you know, just um, keep windexing those, uh, those tabletops. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there are steps, as you point out, that could be taken to minimize or, well, I wouldn't say slightly reduce the possibility of transmission in schools, like hiring more teachers and I guess creating more uh, portables outside of schools so that you can uh, you know, cut class sizes in half so that you can ensure social distancing. But they're not taking those steps and they're opening the door for another, another wave, another spike and our hospitals being overrun again. Uh, this is, there's really no excuse for not taking every possible precaution to stop this from happening because some of it is, is not within our control. Some of it is. And everything that is within our control, we should be doing. Uh, everything within our control, within, re- within reality, within, within reason, we should be doing to make this thing uh, go away or to, to keep, keep us safe from another wave. And Ford fails again. And I think that uh, parents are not going to forget when it comes time to vote who it was that put their kids back in school when there was still a threat. Some parents may be happy about it. They'll say, good, I get to go to work. But I think in general, he's, I, I never like to count anybody out, but he's, if an election were held now, he'd be out. And it'd be curious to see whether this stink from his mishandling of COVID will carry forward to the, to, you know, next fall. Mm -hmm. We'll see. And I think reasonable parents are prepared to accept reasonable risks as the cost of getting on with their lives. I mean, we do it every single day. Every time you get behind the wheel of a car or something, you're you're assuming a reasonable risk. That's right. Or stepping off a sidewalk. And I think even, you know, parents who are, who are, you know, very, very big on hand washing and masking and distancing and all the rest recognize that you can't, run the risk down to zero but there are reasonable risks and the reasonable risks are you do everything in your power to make the risk as small and therefore as acceptable as possible i mean if it's like putting on a seat belt or airbags or whatever else we do these sorts of things and sometimes they cost you a little bit of money but i think the overwhelming number in of people in ontario are prepared to get back to almost normal if we thought the risks were being mitigated and they're not, you know, we're basically, you know, the, the provincial government is just saying, well, we hope it's going to be different this time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's, what's Einstein's definition of insanity? <laughs> yeah. Keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. Yeah. It's well, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that it, that this fourth wave doesn't come and hope that it doesn't uh, vector through schools. Uh, I'd love, I'd love it if, if students could, could teach in a, or could learn in a safe environment and teachers could be in a safe environment because as, as you mentioned the, the social aspect of schooling is 
probably uh, more important as far as lifelong skills than the individual things being taught, at least in, yeah. in my opinion, it, it, learning how to work with people, how to manage your, your workload and things like that is more important than, you know, memorizing Pythagorean theorem. And so I, I really would like it if, if students could resume, because it's, it's very tough on teenagers, especially, but maybe also, you know, younger kids, just being separated from your social group and re resorting to constantly talking to each other on, on Zoom. It's, I, it's just not, I just don't think it's healthy. No, um, it isn't. It isn't. It's tough. It's psychologically very difficult and it's been, you know, it's tough to learn, but it's also tough to learn how to get along with other people. And, you know, God knows we know, we need to know how to do that. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, when the lid comes off of this, I thought, you know, one of the, one of the funniest and most telling things, uh, it was just like the perfect parable for the way the provincial government is handling the, uh, the, the school situation is uh, the uh, minister of education, Stephen Lecce had, uh, had a press conference and he did it. You know, of course they, they like to, to do it as a bit of a show piece so they did it in a school classroom to uh to talk about you know all of their uh, new uh their covid protocols and how safe it's going to be and it's a classroom that would normally hold 35 kids well they capped the number of reporters who could attend the press conference that lecce was giving about school safety and how safe they're going to be i think it's six and they kept <laughs> saying well why can't we put more people in no 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 because it's not safe it's like, well, wait a second, you got six of us in here and you're going to have 35 kids in here in a couple of weeks. And you're saying that's safe, but we can only have six people in today because it's not safe to have more people than that because of COVID protocols. And he, and he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer why one was true and one wasn't. They were so, always at war with Oceania. We always have been. <clears throat> oh, man. All right. Well, we continue to document the world as it goes by. As, yes, at, at a blazing speed sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes at a crawl. I, I I long for the crawls. <laughs> I nice. long for when the world is when the, there's not that much to talk about. Uh, we haven't come across that yet. Stephen, thank you again for uh, our conversation today. Hey, always a pleasure. And Stephen Lawtons can be found on Twitter at Stephen Lawtons, which is spelled S T E P H E N L A U T E N S. And you can find my ongoing work at NewMusicNation.ca. Uh, that's it, Stephen. Talk to you next week. Yeah, looking forward to it. And this has been Stephen and Stephen. I'm Stephen Kersner.